Hey there, welcome to night school. Welcome. I feel like I need to enunciate my L's better. Welcome. A good old day of mob riots and violence, which was completely expected. I haven't been paying attention to anything, but I knew January 6th was going to be a day in which the mobs converge. And I'm, you know, I don't support mobs of any kind. I don't support riots. You know, I have no problem calling the riots that took place during the summer riots. I don't like the politicization of calling things what they are. What was going on during the summer, the whole BLM thing, riots. Does it mean they were all riots? No. But to deny that riots were happening or finding some sort of justification you know, getting into this semantics game, it's all just nonsense, and the same goes for today. It doesn't matter what your justification is, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, I call things what they are, and if I were an alien simply witnessing the behavior, which I might be, I would call it exactly what it is, because I wouldn't understand all the gibberish, I wouldn't understand the symbols, I would just see the behavior for what it is, And that's all you can strive to do. See the behavior for what it is and honestly describe it. So we have riots today. We've had a year of riots. Maybe not a year. We had six months, however long it's been. Um, And, you know, I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with that. And, you know, it's, it's not some bold declaration to say, I don't condone violence. I just don't condone violence of any kind because I'm not a pacifist. I know that I have a capacity inside of me for violence as a nonviolent person, as a person who has no history of violence, a little bit of roughhousing. I've roughhoused, which I like that term, roughhousing. I've never actually thought about it because it doesn't make any sense. Roughhousing. What do houses have to do with it? Because when you think of roughhousing, you think of a bunch of little boys, you know, smacking each other around, wrestling, playing rough. Playing rough makes sense. Rough housing. Being rough within the house, I don't know. I mean, I just found out benighted doesn't mean what I thought it meant. I was talking to my friend last night, and the word benighted came up. And both of us thought it referred to some sort of honor being bestowed upon you, like being knighted, even though there's no K. There's no K in be knighted. But I looked up the definition, and it means basically to be overtaken by darkness. Hence, knight. I didn't know that the knight in be knighted seems to refer to nightfall. And I don't even know that it does, but the definition seemed to suggest that. It's not an honor at all. It's actually being consumed by darkness, apparently. Uh, or, you know, decay, bad stuff happening, benighted, means bad stuff happening. So I don't know what roughhousing means, but I like it. But no, but I'm a nonviolent person. I don't, I don't have a history of violence, but I would never call myself a pacifist, even though I strive in every possible situation. In every situation where violence is possible, I strive not to give in. I don't even care so much about being a peacemaker because a peacemaker can be very self-righteous and a peacemaker can easily get sucked in or become the new target. A peacemaker can easily be the person who two opposing sides 
I mean, you can be the person that unites two people who are fighting. They might unite against you and be like, hey, we're trying to fight here. So we're going to take you out first. It's like if you've ever seen a couple fighting, you don't participate in that because suddenly that couple is going to start loving each other again and hating you. Whatever animosity they have toward each other is going to be directed toward you. So I don't see myself as a peacemaker, but I, I don't see myself as a, a pacifist. I'm just somebody who, if violence is, is if there's even violence in the air, I'm going to do what I can to avoid even breathing that violent air. You breathe in that violent air? Some people are. Today, people are breathing violent air. But I don't call myself a pacifist for the same reason I don't call myself a feminist, for the same reason I don't call myself any number of, you know, identity signalers. You know, I don't call myself these things because I don't want somebody to hold it against me if I do something that isn't in line with that ism. You know, if I call myself a pacifist, I don't want to get pushed to the point where I have to defend myself and then be like, oh my God, I didn't know that this existed inside of me. I'm just shocked. I'm so shocked that I, somebody pushed me to the point of violence and I retaliated. I don't even know who I am anymore because I know very well what I'm capable of, even things that I've never done, even though I've never been in a real fight where you like deliberately try to hurt somebody or punch them hard in the face. I've never been in that sort of situation, but I know that I'm capable of it because I am the same as those people. You know, I might have things about me that make me unique, but I'm part of that species. And if you're part of that species, there is always a circumstance. There is always a situation where you could be pushed into doing something that other people do. Doesn't mean it will happen. And the more aware you are of that potential, the more likely you're going to know how to stop it or you're going to recognize it when it's starting. You know, you're going to recognize that feeling if you've considered the potential of it, you know, because you'll hear that. I mean, it's common in stories where somebody who considers themselves somewhat of a pacifist has to defend themselves and they kill somebody or hurt themselves and they have this existential crisis because they're like, I never thought of myself killing somebody. I don't know who I am. Whereas for me, it's just as simple as like, I know that I'm capable of that. And it sucks too. It sucks to even talk about this. I had a girlfriend many years ago. We worked together, which is just going to cast a spell of doom upon any relationship, except for all those married couples, those happy married couples who met at the workplace. But in many situations, you know, working with somebody, uh, I mean, dating somebody that you work with is just not a wonderful idea. But I remember telling her we were like drinking wine or something and hanging out in my kitchen. And I remember just telling her we were having a philosophical conversation. And I told her, you know, I could kill somebody if I had to. And it was, you know, presented. It wasn't like me sitting there being like out of nowhere being like, hey, baby, you know, I could kill somebody if I had to. And it wasn't like that. It wasn't like I forced this in. Into the conversation, you know, and. I remember she was a little taken aback at the time. And then when we broke up, it came up. Like when we broke up, she like threw all this stuff at me. And some of it was deserved, but some of it was just total nonsense. And she brought that up. And it's like, all I was talking about is the potential. I know that I have the capacity. I'm a man. And not that I don't think women aren't capable of killing somebody. Obviously they are. But especially as a man, that's something that I've studied. I mean, when I look at my interests, and this is a good direction to go in, when I look at my interests, 
I've always, whether it's art or whether it's just subject matter, whether it's just research, whether it's academic, the things that I was always interested in my entire life kind of surrounded violence. They involve the idea of violence, but I've never been interested in actual violence. I've never been interested in, in a fist to a face. I've never been interested in gore. I mean, I'm actually incredibly squeamish, so all of these things bother me when I see them or have them described to me. You know, I'm interested in the psychology of violence. I'm interested in the imagery of violence. And this is how I know I'm an art... This is how I know that I'm an art... an, An artsy guy. This is how I know at the end of the day that no matter, like, how far I get out there on some, you know, tangent, like, at the end of the day... I know I'm an artsy guy because I'm sitting here saying, well, I don't really like violence, but I like the imagery of violence. I like the idea philosophically of thinking about, you know, you know what I mean? I like the, sim- the symbolism of violence, you know, but it's true. Like I've always been drawn to swords and this is true for many people. I mean, there's a reason why swords are so attractive. Like when you see a sword on a wall, like let's say you're in a museum or you're touring an old castle and you see a sword mounted on the wall you're like that looks awesome you don't look at that and think oh my god that's excessive that's that, they shouldn't have that out you just think that looks really cool you know what it is you know that it's a, a weapon designed to kill people but you don't see that sword mounted on a wall and have some dilemma about it And swords have stayed attractive to us, which is really interesting. You know, it's really interesting that swords remain attractive because you think that they don't use them in battle anymore. While they are cool and there might be a situation where a sword saves your life, you know, people aren't going to war with swords. We have far greater weapons. You know, we have weapons, even just small little weapons, unimpressive looking little weapons that could take out even the best swordsmen. I mean, you could take out a swordsman with a BB gun these days, a pellet gun. You could shoot out a swordsman's eyes with a pellet gun. It's a little too violent for me, that description I just gave, a little too violent for me. No, but we're still attracted to the imagery, even of outdated weaponry, which I find very interesting, that we still look at outdated weaponry, and it's actually more attractive to us than modern weaponry. Although I find guns attractive, too, because that's what I'm talking about. When I say I like the imagery of violence, I think guns look really cool. And when I was a little kid and I would draw guys with guns, whether it was a cowboy, whether it was an army guy, I would draw characters with guns almost all the time. You know, when I think about my my self-expression as a child, I wonder what percentage of that involved weapons. But most of the time, it didn't involve someone actually doing anything. Like, yeah, I drew people shooting each other, maybe. You know, something I couldn't even comprehend. When you're five years old, drawing a cowboy, shooting another cowboy with blood spurting out, you're not really thinking about what that is in a physical human sense. Uh, It becomes almost abstracted. And I knew that at the time. Even though I was five years old, I was sitting there thinking... This isn't violence. This is abstract violence. No, but it's true, though. I mean, it is. it does become kind of abstracted when you're a little kid. And you're more attracted to the imagery. At least I was. Like, I've never been drawn to blood, to gore, to pain. I've never been drawn to pain in that way. 
And so for me, it's like my interest in these things, my, my interest, especially for many years, they surrounded violence, but they weren't the actual acts of violence. Like my interest in organized crime, one of the least interesting aspects of organized crime to me are the murders, like being interested in the mafia, doing all this research I do on the mafia, I will read about the murders, but I'm more interested in why the murder happened. Like what rule did this guy break that made the mafia kill him? But when it comes to the actual nitty gritty, so-and-so shot him and they wrapped him in a blanket and, you know, or dismembered, you know, whatever it is, that graphic stuff has never been attractive to me and hopefully it never will be. And the same is true for... uh, I would say the same is true for my interest in sport, in sport, which is like, I'm, I'm not into boxing. I'm not into MMA. I wish I was because that stuff gets a lot of attention and people like to talk about it. It's a way to connect with people, but it's a little too literal for me. The idea of people actually punching each other in the face is just a little too literal. Like I like football. And one of the reasons I like football is because it is violent. I enjoy the fact that there is risk that I am watching people risk their bodies. And that's something that's missing from baseball and basketball and other sports. One of the reasons I like football is because you can get seriously hurt. And I don't like when people get seriously hurt, but there's something to that physicality that makes it attractive. But I like that the physicality isn't the whole of it. It's a very complex sport. And the fact that people hit each other very hard all the time throughout the entire game that makes it more enjoyable because it is like watching people do battle. But I don't desire that. Like, I don't I don't watch a game and think, oh, the, the highlight of the game for me was when that guy got clocked. When the guy gets clocked, I'll be like, whoa, that was crazy. That's part of the game. It's exciting. But I don't think, you know, that's not what stands out to me. You know, what stands out to me are touchdowns, the outcome of the game. The strategy, the drama, that's what stands out to me about watching a sport like football. I like football substantially more because there is an element of violence, but it's not what draws me in. Whereas, you know, boxing and, you know, MMA and things like that, I'm just not into them because it's just very literal. It's people kicking and punching each other. And I did go through a phase, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago where I was watching these street fight videos where it was just these sort of underground fights that they would film. And uh, I think I was more into the fact that there were these underground street fights. I was more into the kind of street fighter atmosphere than I was what they were actually doing. Because I saw one where a guy guy got punched in the side of the head. I I, I can barely say this, but his eye started bleeding. Like he started leaking blood from his eye. And it was, I, I think I stopped watching. I think that made me stop watching these street fights. But I was into the idea of it because it looked cool. They would find these weird spaces to fight in. Uh, and it kind of gave it the street fighter atmosphere. Kind of like a bad guy hideout. You know, I like to talk about how attractive bad guy hideouts are. Cartoon bad guy hideouts. Comic book bad guy hideouts. Uh, where there's like a random crate. There's a bunch of random crates around. Like, what's in those crates? There's a random chain hanging on the wall. You know, it's just... It's like a clubhouse, but also an auto garage. And there's a random, you know, barrel. For whatever reason, I've always been attracted to those sorts of atmospheres. So when I was watching these fight videos, I think that was one of the bigger draws for me is that I was like, oh, these guys are in some sort of underground space. They found some secret spot where they can do what they want. 
So I think that's what was attractive to me. But when it comes to actual real violence, you know, I just I'm very well aware of the fact that I have the capacity to do something violent as a physical being. As a physical being, but then a man on top of that, a physical being who is also a man, I know that I have the capacity to do that. And so I would rather not be shocked if I were put in a situation where I had to respond violently to protect myself or to protect an idea that I cherish, you know, because it's not even just like, oh, if somebody was, you know, in my house with a gun, what would I do? It's not even that because, I mean, I think there are ideas that you would defend. You know, I think there are it's not as simple as like i'm i would only commit acts of violence to defend my family i think that something could push me i think that somebody could attack a certain idea severely enough an idea that i cherish that i might retaliate or feel that i have to defend that idea i don't know what that is you know but i have to entertain that thought because the more aware I am of my potential to do these things, the more control I have over these things, and the less chance of, of having an identity. Hey, hey, baddie, baddie, just one sec. One sec. Speaking of defending my house. Okay, we're back. Obviously, you heard the doorbell there. Batty sure did. It was an Amazonian woman with a spear. An Amazonian woman heard me talking about how I'm nonviolent. And she said, well... Since you're nonviolent, I'm going to take your house. I'm going to take your house. It was an Amazonian delivery person. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but they dropped off a package. It's funny, though, with Batty, if he hears a doorbell on TV or on you know something I'm watching on my computer, if he hears any kind of doorbell sound, he just freaks out. And I don't know where he learned that because I'm pretty sure that his old house doesn't have a doorbell. I've been to his old house many times, and it might have a doorbell. Maybe it does, but I don't feel like he has that much doorbell experience. Yet he knows how to respond to a doorbell. He knows the doorbell means somebody's here, and I've got to bark. Uh, but anyway, to sum up that whole thing, yeah, you know, knowing that you have the potential for violence means you're not going to be shocked if somebody puts you in a position where you have to react violently. And yeah, you could be the monk who just lets you know, the warrior run his sword through you and you make this big, bold statement by not defending yourself even then. You know, you could take that approach, the Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, if you strike me down, I'm going to be more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Speaking of which, you know, I like how in that original Star Wars, how Obi-Wan Kenobi calls, and we had to get our Star Wars reference in. Just like the banker I talked about who told me he's starting a Star Wars podcast, you know, I, I have to make my quarterly, and that, it was only a month ago, so it, I have to make my bi-quarterly references to Star Wars. But it's funny to me in the original Star Wars how Obi-Wan Kenobi calls Darth Vader Darth, because in later movies they establish that that's a title, and nobody refers to the Darths as Darth. Hey, Darth. Hey, King. Hey, Lord. You know, so it's funny to me that in that he calls he just calls him Darth. Hey, Darth. But no, you could be the Obi-Wan Kenobi where it's like there's something empowering, spiritually empowering about letting somebody just kill you. That's not me, though. That's not me. You know, the reality is, is that I know that I'm capable of defending myself. 
But I don't celebrate that. I don't celebrate that fact. I don't want that. And it's very easy to have self-defense fantasies. Like, I've never had fantasies that involve me initiating violence. Like, it's why I just cannot relate to, even as an exercise, because I try to do this. As part of this whole process, you know, I've allowed myself to do little mental exercises, which are, you know, what would it be like to think like this sort of person? And when I was interested in true crime, that was a part of it. Because I didn't relate to serial killers. I, I wasn't relating to the serial killers. You know, I really wasn't. But I allowed myself to go down that road for the same reasons that I'm talking about all of this. You allow yourself to go down that road so that you know what that is. And you know yourself a little better. Because the whole point of going down, the, the whole point of going through any mental exercise is to know yourself a little better. To know who you actually are. And in the same way that you can allow somebody to kill you as some sort of spiritual exercise, you can get caught up in this idea that I don't have a body. I don't have a mind. It's all an illusion. You know, you can get caught up in that way of thinking. And I think that way a lot. I try to remind myself of that. And Jesus, man, everything. I haven't even gotten phone calls. Just a sec. Yeah, welcome to Disruption Central. Welcome to my new show, Disruption Central. I haven't gotten a call, like it's the landline. My mom's had a landline forever, you know, and she passed away. And so I still have the landline just in case, you know, she has different things. She has different, different services that still have that phone number. So I've kept it active and I haven't gotten a call since before Christmas. Nobody has called that phone since before Christmas. And uh, it was just some like, it was from like L&I. Washington State L&I saying coronavi, they said coronavi. That's how I know I'm going insane, is they said, coronavi is still spreading. Coronavi is still spreading in Washington, Washington State. Washington. That's how they sounded. There's a British person and they used the term coronavi because my mind is gone, baby. Um... But anyway, you know, it's you, you do these mental exercises with something like violence so that you know your own limits. But in terms of like, it's easy to get into self-defense, self-defense fantasies too, which I've had. I've had self-defense fantasies where I think if somebody came up to me right now on the street and tried to mess with me, here's what I'd do. It's the kind of thing you think about in the shower. Yeah, if somebody tried to break into my house, you know, I'd grab this and I'd do this. And, you know, I've had self-defense fantasies. I've never had offense fantasies. And it's why, like, reading about serial killers for so many years, I never related to the idea of going out and wanting to hurt somebody. I never related to the idea of fantasizing about hurting somebody for no reason. Same with the school shooter thing, which is extremely foreign to me, that sort of hot-blooded rage. I've never related to the idea of wanting to hurt the people who've wronged me. I want to hurt the people who've wronged me. Uh, You know, I just don't relate to that idea. But I have had self-defense fantasies before. I feel like now less than ever. You know, now I feel like I have fewer self-defense fantasies than ever before, which is a good thing. Because I used to have them a lot. I used to constantly, you know... I feel that I've gone from being, you know, not the most paranoid person, but a paranoid person, to being hypervigilant most of the time. I'm hypervigilant, but I don't think I'm quite as paranoid. Because the interesting thing about self-defense fantasies and paranoia 
is you can easily be the you can easily be the uh what do you call it like the person who starts it like you can get yourself so worked up into a frenzy that you're looking for people to do things that they're probably not even doing so that you have an excuse to retaliate and not that I ever did that you know not that I ever like attacked somebody because I thought they were doing something but I've gotten mad at people before for little to no reason because I thought they were trying to mess with me or do or do something you know so it's like you can work yourself up into a frenzy you create a feedback loop in your own head when you do that which is why it's good to be hyper vigilant it's good to be prepared but you don't want to be in some state of mind where you're fantasizing about how you'd protect yourself or your family uh it's masturbatory for one uh, but, you know, it's it also comes back to, you know, just, you know, you don't call yourself something because if you break that, like if you call yourself a pacifist and you find yourself in a fight, you're going to have some kind of identity crisis. And why put yourself through that? I think it's far, it's a much better way to live to say, hey, there could be a potential situation where I have to punch somebody in the face. And because I know that if I ever have to do that, I won't have to deal with some kind of identity crisis. I'll still have to probably deal with a crisis because I don't want to punch somebody in the face, but at least it won't be about who I am and who I think I am. And I guess the way I think is I'm always imagining this almost phantom. I'm always imagining this phantom person who's like just waiting for me to be a hypocrite. Like I'm imagining like calling myself a pacifist and then I break that pacifism by punching somebody in the face who was messing with me. And then I'm imagining this this phantom behind me, this phantom person who's like, see, you're a hypocrite. You're contradicting yourself. You know, when in reality, that person doesn't exist in my life. I mean, if they do, they sure are quiet about it. But those people do exist, which is why we have those phantoms in our mind. We have those phantoms in our mind who are just waiting for us to be a hypocrite so they can shame us because we see those people. We see them online. I mean, the Internet is just a haven for that way of being. An internet, the Internet is a haven for these phantoms who are just waiting for somebody to contradict themselves so they can say, see, you know, if you look at the comments, like if you become a notable enough person, if you become a, even a micro celebrity there are people who are just waiting to point something out about you that is unfavorable, especially contradiction, especially hypocrisy. So while I might that might be a phantom to me, that person might not exist, I'm that person too. I'm that person in my own mind. I am the phantom in my own mind that's going to point something out when I somehow break a rule that I established for myself. So why even set up that rule? Instead, make it just a lifestyle choice. Instead, just live it. And don't worry about some making a hard rule. It's sort of like the feminism thing, which I've talked about before, which is like, I don't call myself a feminism, <laughs> a feminism. I don't call myself a feminist in large part because I don't need to assign all of the rules that people associate with feminism to myself because I might not agree with all of them. Or there might be a moment where I you know, I say something that's out of line with that and somebody's waiting to be like, oh, see, you're not a feminist after all. You're a hypocrite. So why call myself that? Why call myself that? I would rather live that through my conduct. I would rather live out, you know, I would rather live my attitudes out is how I would put it. But to get away from me for a second, to get away from me, get away from me. 
I saw something perfect. Like I saw the perfect example of this conversation this morning. I was driving and I saw a car with a coexist a rainbow coexist sticker. And they had a bunch of other bumper stickers, but I was too far away to see what they were. But based on the fact that they had a big old a big old rainbow coexist sticker, based on that, I can kind of figure out what their other stickers were. There was probably a shop local sticker, shop loco. But the point is, is that I see this car with a giant rainbow coexist sticker, and what are they doing? Ruthlessly tailgating this van. And I saw the van pull out. The van pulled out very slowly onto the main road, and they did not cut the coexist car off. They didn't cut them off. And just to describe what type of van it was, it was one of those, I don't know whether to call them a commercial van, but you don't see people with these. They're like commercial transport vans. And they're surprisingly skinny, but they're very tall, and they have a lot of seats in them. I think they're like modern church vans. I think, you know, the airporter might use these now. You didn't used to see them. They're not like big utility vans, and they're certainly not minivans. They're this kind of commercial van, often white, kind of narrow, but long and tall. And uh, so they pulled out very slowly onto the main road. They did not cut the person in front of me off. They did not cut the coexist car off, but it was kind of an annoyance. Like the coexist car kind of probably had to tap their brakes. They probably had to slow down a couple notches, you know. But after this van pulled out, the van was going very slow. And I think the van purposely started going slow because the coexist car, they ruthlessly tailgated them. Like they weren't just a little bit close. I'm talking about like inches away, ruthlessly tailgating. And I thought it was perfect because obviously, I mean, I think you can imagine how I feel about coexist stickers, which are, that's a low hanging ball sack to kick. You know, that's how I feel about like, I'm above making fun of coexist stickers, but I'm not above noticing how the guy with the rainbow coexist sticker or the woman, I didn't see who they were. I'm not above pointing out the joyous hypocrisy. I'm not above being the phantom because that's what I was being. I got to be the phantom this morning because I got to watch somebody be a hypocrite. I got to watch them unless it was all irony. Unless their coexist sticker was an ironic statement. I got to watch this person be uh, a walking contradiction to quote the great green day. They were a walking contradiction they were, uh, you know, just a blatant hypocrite. And I thought it was so perfect. But it's also exactly what I'm talking about. Because that's not coexistence. Hey, 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 that's not coexistence. Ruthlessly tailgating somebody who didn't mean to almost cut you off. That's not coexisting. You know, you're being, you know, you're losing it. And for that person, and I mean, that's the, that's the reason I don't, <laughs> that's the reason I don't have a coex, a rainbow coexist sticker on my car because I don't want to tailgate somebody and have somebody look at me and be like, look at that hypocrite. Uh, no, I think there's a lot of reasons I don't have that sticker on my car, even though I believe in it. I mean, it's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like if I had a sticker that said pacifist on my car. But then somebody saw me giving the middle finger. They'd be like, that guy doesn't seem like much of a pacifist. I would rather somebody see me as a pacifist simply because I drive like a sane, responsible person, which I do. I take driving very seriously. Uh, I, I'm, very, I'm a very solemn driver. I take it, it's scary and it's serious. And so I take it, I, I you know, follow the rules.
Uh, but, you know, I don't need to label myself. I don't need to say, oh, I believe in coexistence because I'm setting myself up in that situation. And if there is a situation where I need to give the middle finger, and I got to say too, you know, I pick my spots. I pick my spots. If there's a big burly guy, you know, if there's a big burly guy nearby, I'm not going to give him the finger. You know, I'm not going to give that guy the middle finger. But uh, if I see, uh, if a lady, if a little old lady cuts me off, I might give her the finger. I pick my spots. You should know that about me, is that uh, I might talk tough. I might talk tough, but like, I'm not going to give the finger to a guy who can kick my ass. Whereas I certainly have given the middle finger to all the old ladies, every old lady. I just give the middle finger to old ladies. No, but, uh, you know, it was just funny. It was perfect. I, it just couldn't have been more perfect seeing a person with a rainbow coexist sticker ruthlessly tailgating somebody who didn't even deserve it. Like, it'd be one thing if that van had been equally ruthless. Like, if that van had equally, you know, if that van had cut them off with an equal degree of ruthlessness to the tailgating, I would understand it a little more. But it was like this person was looking for an excuse almost to tailgate this van. So I thought that was funny. Uh, but I don't want to be that person. And that's exactly who I would be if I said I was a pacifist. That's exactly who I would be if I said I was a feminist. That's exactly who I would be if I described myself in any number of virtuous ways that are impossible for the average person to live up to 100% of the time from birth to death. You know, it's impossible to say that there won't be some situation in my life where I have to be violent, but I don't celebrate it. And so I'm certainly not celebrating the riots today, nor do I find any justification for them. And trust me, I'm not a fan of Joe Obama and Kalamer. Kamaler. <laughs> Kalamer. Conglomerate. Kamalerate. Um, no, I'm not a fan of Joe Obama and Kamaler. You know, I'm just not. Those aren't my representatives. Who is? Who, who are my representatives? Me. But no, I'm not a fan of these people. I'm not a fan of uh, this whole thing. But I also don't celebrate violence in response to it, just like I don't celebrate, you know, when the when the Minneapolis police precinct was building, was burning. Jeez, I can't even talk. When they were building the, when the BLM mobs were building a police station, no, when they were burning the police station, even though it was a very striking visual, and aesthetically I could appreciate it, there's no way that I can celebrate that. There's no way that I can celebrate that violence, because you open the doors for everybody which is what's happening now. The reason why the riot today played out the way it did is because those doors got blown wide open. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not, I'm truly not blaming anybody. I'm just saying I can't celebrate it. I can't justify it. And I myself, you know, I try to live a life where the possibility of violence exists, but I try to keep it purely a mental exercise, and I try to avoid situations that could escalate into me actually needing to use violence, because I wouldn't be honorable. If I were in a situation where I feel that somebody pushed me to the point where I had to use violence to defend myself or to defend something I cared about, someone I cared about, at that point, honor is out the window, because I feel that the level that you would have to push me, you would have to push me so far that you yourself would have already dishonored me. So there would be no, like, fighting like men. I'd go straight for the ball sack. I'd go straight for your eyes. I'd go for anything. 
I would be an absolute savage in that situation because for me to be provoked to that point would, and this is, this sounds like a self-defense fantasy. Here I am. This is how easy it is. Here's what I would do if you provoke me, but no, just long story short, you know, it's anything that would provoke me to that point would involve such a deep dishonor on my enemy's part in order to even create an enemy out of themselves that uh, all honor on my side would be out the window because, you know, I didn't grow up in an environment where men just fight and have this like mono mono sense of honor where it's like, don't punch me in the balls and uh, don't break my nose. Just we're going to land blows to each other's upper body. You know, I, I just don't, I, I didn't grow up in that world. So uh, if somebody provokes me into a fight in this day and age, it's not going to be an honorable situation. Therefore, I don't have to worry about fighting with honor. Enough of that, though. Enough of that. Something I was thinking about a couple days ago, my friend sent me a song by Ashra Proggy. Like kind of, it was kind of this experimental prog guitar is how I describe it. I don't know if that's accurate, but it was a song, and he he mentioned that it sounded like another band. A newer, a later band, a band from the 90s. I think this recording was from the 70s, maybe, maybe the 80s, but this Ashra song. And he sent it to me, and he, he said it sounded like this other band. And so I started listening to it, and it was funny because it didn't sound anything like that other band. And as I was listening to it, though, I was trying to do the equation. Like, I was trying to, my imagination was working to try to find the similarities. Like, I was like, hmm, you know, well, the drum machine kind of sounds, maybe maybe he's saying that the drum machine sounds like the drum machine that other band used on that one song. You know, I was almost hallucinating a connection. Because I wasn't hearing an obvious connection between these two artists, I was almost like, my brain was almost trying to find that connection. And that's actually a very creative thing. Because I was like, you know, I was really exploring what I was hearing and trying to find the parallels and going like way out there, like, oh, he's making some abstract comparison between these things. And then it got to the end of the song and a melody comes in that is an identical melody to the band that he was comparing it to. He meant, he, he meant what he was saying completely literally. He meant that, oh, this song has a melody that is very unique, but it is identical to a melody played by this other band. And so he meant that very literally when he said this sounds like that other band. He meant they play the same melody. But in the song he sent, the melody doesn't come in until the very end of the song. So afterwards, it was funny to me because I was like, oh, duh. He meant that this melody literally sounds identical to this other band's melody. Meanwhile, until that melody came in, here I was trying to figure it out. And hearing things that I wasn't even hearing. I was practically hallucinating similarities between these things. My brain was trying to do this equation. It was almost like there was this algebra where I was trying to fill in the the blanks. Trying to fill in, uh, you know, it's like A plus B equals 10. And I was like, well, maybe negative 20 plus 30. Maybe that's what he means. And then he just tells me, oh, 5 plus 5. And I'm like, oh, it's that simple. You know, that's kind of what my brain was doing. And it it got me thinking about how many ways that you do that. How many, like, if somebody suggests that there's a connection between things, your brain, whether you like it or not, will try to find that. 
And it made me think of magic eye pictures, actually, because I am terrible at seeing magic eye, and I know exactly how it works. That's the funny thing. I know the physical sensation when you kind of unfocus, but yet also focus, because it's very similar to meditation. I think your brain does something similar while meditating that it does when you're able to see the hidden image of a magic eye. Uh, it's very similar because it's like you you unfocus, but in unfocusing, you almost focus in this larger way. And it's hard to describe, but if you've ever done that, I mean, it's, it's what happens when you're just like staring. This used to happen to me when I was a kid growing up. There'd be certain parts of the house, and it tended to be the same parts of the house, which is strange. But if I looked at them, I could just kind of zone out. And, and there was no reason for that spot. It wasn't like a clock on the wall. Oh, if I stare at that clock, my eyes will kind of unfocus and I zone out, but yet I also zoom in and focus in this other strange way. I would just like look out the window and there'd be like a certain tilt of my head or something, or I'd turn my head a certain way and it would happen. And it's sort of what happens when you see the hidden image. So I understand the mechanism. I understand the physical sensation, the, the, the process that allows you to see a hidden image in a magic eye picture. But I can barely do it. And maybe I should try it now. Like maybe I should try it now that I meditate daily and all this stuff. Maybe I'll be better at it. But what usually happens is I just stare at it. And it's I have magic eye impotence. Where I have to explain to the magic eye picture, this is the first time this has ever happened. Normally, I can see the hidden image every time. It's like magic eye impotence. I just, for whatever reason, I can't do it. This is the only, it's not you. You're a beautiful magic eye. You're, a, you're, one, you're the most beautiful magic eye picture I've ever, I've ever stared at. I just can't do it. Magic eye impotence. But, uh, and what ends up happening is you just have to give up. <laughs> you just have to give up in many cases, you know, because it's, because the last thing you want to do is keep staring at that magic eye. The last thing you want to do is stare at that because that's one of the most aesthetically ugly sights. The way that, like, not the hidden image, but the way that that pattern, like these blobs of color and this pattern, they often look digital. Like, it's not like a Jackson Pollock splatter art, who I'm not even a fan of. I'm not even a Jackson Pollock fan. But, you know, at least I can appreciate, you know, the ruggedness of it. It's organic. The splatters are real, folks. The splatters are real. But with the magic eye, it's almost like the same aesthetic, but, you know, completely manufactured. And so you're staring at this thing that is aesthetically horrible. And you're not seeing it, so you're frustrated. And it's just a lose-lose. And that makes me think of, you know, well, I'll finish this point, but... uh how that relates to the song thing is that when I'm staring at a magic eye for long enough and I'm getting frustrated, I almost start to see what I'm supposed to see, but I'm not actually seeing it. Like I try to see that like, Oh, maybe that's the hidden image. Oh, maybe the hidden image is much more subtle than I thought it would be. Oh, that's it. That's the hidden image. And I'm not seeing it though, but my brain is trying to. My brain is trying to reconcile it. That's the word that I'm looking for here. Your brain tries to reconcile these things. Like when my friend said, this song sounds like this other band's song, up until the point that the melody kicked in that ended up being the same exact melody that both artists use, up until that point, my brain was trying to reconcile the comparison. And as a result, I was trying to hear what my friend was talking about. And so my imagination was 
kind of generating something that wasn't there. And that can happen if you stare at a magic eye where it's almost like, yeah, I'm not seeing it. I'm just not seeing it. Oh, maybe that's it. Oh, maybe it's this. Maybe it's just a little more subtle. You know, and that's not how it works, though. You know when you see it. When you actually do have that experience where you see the hidden image, you know it. But for me, like, I just end up having to give up. And I sort of a similar experience. A couple months ago, I was out on a boat with my dad, and we were going along the shoreline. We were, we were a little ways from the shoreline, but we were looking at the shore. And he goes out on boats a lot, and so he's very good at spotting eagles up in the trees. And so my dad would be like, oh, there's an eagle right there up in that tree. And you can see them because you'll see a little white speck. And that's what we call eagles here. In, in this part of the country, we call eagles little white specks. Do you see that little white speck? Oh, an eagle? You mean a little white speck? No, but you'll see this little white speck, and you know that that's the head of the eagle. You can't make out the eagle, but you can just see this white speck up in a tree. But my dad would be like, oh, there's an eagle right there. And of course, I couldn't immediately see it. So I'd start to see the eagle in other places. Like I would see a glint of light on a tree branch, and I'd be like, oh, there's the eagle. But then when you actually see the little white speck, you go, oh, no, that's it. It's like seeing once you finally see the hidden image or once that melody came in in the song my friend sent, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, this is what he meant. So like when my dad would say there's an eagle, I would like I would practically hallucinate eagles. I'm seeing eagles all over. Oh, you mean the hundred eagles that are over there? They call that hundred eagle island. Uh, no, but then when I would finally see the little white speck, I would just be like, duh, duh. It's obvious once you see it, but it can take a bit and you might never see it. Which is me and magic eyes. Because I have magic eye impotence, I eventually just have to walk away and forget about it. Because at some point, you're like, this is the ugliest thing I could possibly stare at. And it's not even going to be cool. The hidden image isn't, doesn't even matter to me. I don't, I'm not obsessed with hidden images. So I'm like putting all this effort in staring at something extremely ugly. Trying to reconcile it in my brain. For no reason. And that's something, too, to think about. You know, for all the 90s nostalgia, which I think we're over. I had this realization a couple days ago that, you know, I think we're past 90s nostalgia, and I think we're entering into early 2000s nostalgia. And as I've talked about before, everything's haywire. Like, the whole system of nostalgia, you know, every 15 to 20 years, you start to revisit things, and they become cool again. You know, they get reintegrated into, you know, modernity. There's enough time and distance from that period that it becomes cool again after it was extremely uncool. You know, something that was extremely uncool in 1991 because it was from 1988 and we were, we were so sick of 1988 and 1991. You know, it becomes cool again in 2011. And even though the internet and just the speed, the rate at which culture spins these days, I think has completely changed the natural cycle of nostalgia. I think it's made, it's fractured it. I still think that it plays out, especially on a mainstream level. I think the mainstream does still follow sort of a similar rate where it takes about 15 or 20 years to appreciate something that was popular 15 or 20 years ago. And I think we're now at that point, since it's been 20 years from the year 2000, I do think 
on a mainstream or close to mainstream level, I think people are starting to kind of enjoy that period again after being embarrassed about it for a decade. And uh, so I think we're past the 90s nostalgia thing. But a thought that I had was, you know, when people were doing that, when people were getting into this 90s nostalgia, because like there was a bubble and a lot of people were happy during that time. So I understand it completely. And that's when I came of age. You know, I came of age in the 90s. I was born in 1985. So it would be dishonest to try to say that the 80s were my time, dude. I was born in 1985. So I know all about the 80s. Yeah, even though a lot of the movies I liked, a lot of the music I liked was from the 80s, I came of age in the 90s, and it was a happy time for me. I liked the 90s, but what's important to remember is that a lot of the aesthetic back then looked like magic eye pictures without the hidden image. Like, you would go into a doctor's office, and there would be art on the wall that might as well have been a magic eye, except no longer how, no, long, no matter how long you stared at it, you would never see a hidden image because that was just the way things looked like there were those cups that were popular. And I feel like that you still see them around, but there were those, uh, disposable cups you would get at cafeterias and they had like a teal, they had like a teal wave with a purple stripe. And, uh, I mean, I know somebody who runs a t-shirt company and he made t-shirts of that. Uh, and, and it was, that's sort of the nineties nostalgia thing. It's like, Oh, I have a t-shirt that has that wavy teal and purple cup thing on it that we all recognize because we all used those cups and it reminds us of our childhood. Like, I totally get that. But that was actually a really terrible aesthetic. You know, when you live in that, like, it's fun to look back and be like, oh, wow, like, there would just be art on the wall of a doctor's office that looked like a shitty magic eye. Yet it wasn't a magic eye. There were blobs of color. Or like I was talking about, you know, like I always talk about how sports fans would just wear like a Charlotte Hornets jacket with a L.A. Lakers hat and Chicago Bulls, you know, shorts. And the fact that you're wearing teal, yellow, and red didn't matter because you're just like this little flower soaking in the sun of the 1990s. But the reality is, is like when you were in that, you almost want something more austere. When all the art is like blobs of color and waves of teal and purple and people are walking around wearing just like these clashing globs of sports merchandise, you know, even though there's something nice about that in retrospect to be like, oh, it's just like people were just thriving and they wanted color and, you know, all this fun. Like when you're actually surrounded by that, you're like, just give me a black turtleneck and, and, a, and a pair of black dockers. I want something austere because we are people who like contrast. And that's why we, that's why the nostalgia cycle works the way it does because enough time has passed that an old trend contrasts with a newer trend and becomes new again. It's what, what I talk about when I say like you look at cars and you know, the same model of car will go from being kind of squared on the edges to, to rounded on the edges and they'll go back and forth, you know, every 10 years, whatever. I don't, I don't know cars, but it's sort of the same thing where it's so much of what's new isn't so much that it's new. It's, it's something old that contrasts against whatever you're doing right now. And that contrast becomes desirable, which is why when you're living in a culture that is austere, where people are wearing dark clothes all the time and they're into dark stuff, you almost want that nineties aesthetic back because you're like, you know, let's, let's bring in some contrast. But then when you're in that for 10 years, 
when you're surrounded by that, you want austerity again. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, part of the, that whole process, but it's just an important reminder. Like if you ever find yourself being like, I wish I was in the nineties, because if you were able to actually go back and live in the nineties, you might very well start thinking, God, I, I wish I was in the 2010s. Give me something depressing. Give me something depressing to pay attention to. You know, you might very well start, you know, the grass is always greener. <laughs> it just comes back to that. The, the, the grass is always blacker. The grass is always uh, more teal. The grass is always more teal on the other side. Uh, but no, you can easily get stuck in that where you, you're constantly thinking this other period was better when really it's just you miss contrast. You, you, des- you seek contrast. Um, but just something I was thinking about, you know, with that aesthetic, that magic eye aesthetic. Because it's not just doctor's offices. I feel like sometimes you'd go to somebody's house and their decorations would look like that. I mean, it was a time where it was acceptable to basically have a magic eye aesthetic everywhere you go. In your home, at the doctor's office, on your shirt, on the cup, at the cafeteria. It was everywhere. And I have to look back at that and say, oh yeah, that created me. Like when I was living then, like when I was in the 90s, I wasn't sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm embracing the times in which I live. I was seeking something out, you know. And so you have to remember that that wasn't paradise. While I wish I could go back there and just appreciate it, it was a great time. It wasn't paradise. It wasn't utopia. And I rebelled. You know, I look back at myself and, you know, I found I had a desire to rebel even under those circumstances. So if I were to go back in time and be like, oh, man, I miss the 90s, dude, let's go back to the oh, dude, it's a time machine. Let's go back to the 90s. The reality is, is I'd probably get back there and be like, oh, God, I've got to rebel again. Now that I'm surrounded by this, I've got to rebel against it again. God dang it. I wasted my my time machine vacation going back to a period that I already rebelled in, and now I have to rebel again. Because it turns out that's what I do. <laughs> it turns out that's just what I do. Because even now, like, you know, I'm the type of person where it's like, if I'm hanging out with a bunch of people who are wearing all black, I like to be the person who's wearing a white shirt. Not that I consciously do that, but there's a part of me that's like, yeah, you know, I don't need, it's not that I'm, it's not that I pride myself on nonconformity, but I certainly don't pride myself on conformity. It's the same thing with the technology stuff, where it's the same thing with that, where like, I don't pride myself on being out of touch, but I also don't pride myself on being in touch. Like, I don't pride myself on the fact that I don't know what's going on in popular music. Like, I'm not one of these people who's like, I don't even know what's on TV. I don't even, I don't, I don't even know who Katy Perry is. You know, I'm not somebody who finds pride in that because some people do. I mean, it's even a joke people have been making for years. The whole, I don't even own a TV. I don't even own a TV. Some people are proud of that. I don't, I don't watch TV. You know, some people like to kind of brag a little bit about that. And like, I'm, you know, and I I understand that impulse. I understand the impulse to kind of assert the fact that you're not in touch with things and take a certain pride in that. But I think you should take... I think you should avoid taking pride in being super current. Like, I don't think there's anything to be proud of when you're into whatever the newest thing is. 
But I also don't think there's anything to be proud of when you hate all the new things and you only like old things, which is where I veer. You know, I, I naturally veer that way. I tend to prefer older things. But I also, I make it a point not to pride myself on that. And that's especially important with like the dilemma of being modern man. Like I embrace the fact that by my very nature, I am a modern man, but I don't pride myself on the fact that I'm modern. It's simply a fact that I'm modern. And as a modern man, I have to use contemporary tools. And that includes a smartphone. That includes a laptop. You know, that includes a a microchip in my eyeball and whatever it includes, you know. I I proceed with caution. I try to proceed with caution. But there's that reconciliation again. You know, I was talking about having to reconcile these two different things. And, you know, it can be hard to reconcile that. Like, it can be hard to reconcile the fact that, on one hand, I don't embrace modernity. But on the other hand, I don't reject it either. And if you can accept that, you can be pretty comfortable in the time in which you live. And I guess this idea of reconciliation makes me think of something else, too, to just to add the final wing here to this episode, which is juxtaposition. You know, juxtaposition is one of those techniques that is extremely effective when it's done sparingly. And a great example of that is in the movie A Bronx Tale, the, that amazing fight scene. You know, now you just now can't leave. If you've never seen A Bronx Tale, one of the best movies, one of my favorite movies, but there's the scene where the bikers just get mauled, where these awful bikers just get their asses handed to them by the gangsters. And while this just brutal fight scene is taking place in a bar, while these bikers are just getting ruthlessly beat up, they're playing the Ten Commandments of Love, the old doo-wop song. And so it's the perfect juxtaposition. It's playing this sappy old love song slow, just beautiful doo-wop song. Meanwhile, guys are just getting beaten and they're screaming and they're grunting and they're breaking bottles. And it's extremely effective because the movie doesn't do that throughout the entire movie. And at that time, I don't know how popular that was. I don't know how popular that kind of juxtaposition, because I mean, what makes that effective is that, oh, this is an extremely unlikely song for this kind of scene. But it works. And something is reconciled in that. Like, even though it doesn't make sense, it might, ma- it might have made more sense to play, while this fight scene is taking place, have them play, let the bodies hit the floor. While these guys are fighting, let the bodies hit the floor. It's terrible, embarrassing to even say that. That's pretty, that's a, that's a low-hanging ball sack, too. Making fun of new metal, making fun of that, uh, that's a low-hanging ball sack pinata. I don't need to I don't need to kick that. I'm lower I have to lower myself to kick that ball sack piñata. Um but uh you know sometimes you see that though. Sometimes you'll see like an action movie where they'll play something very literal like that where it's like oh yeah this is an ass kicking this is a song about ass kicking while I'm watching an ass kicking. But juxtaposition is very effective because it's the opposite where it's like this is an unlikely song to go with this kind of scene, but it's highly effective and it's highly effective because you have to use it sparingly. But I think people got away from that and I feel like by the mid 90s through the mid 2000s, which is when I stopped seeing movies, which I'm not proud of. 
just to get back to that, I'm not proud of the fact that I've seen like three movies that have come out in the last 20 years. I'm not proud of that. It's just a fact. It's not that I think new movies suck or old movies are somehow better. I prefer old movies, but I guess I'm just not even into movies. You know, I'm not, I'm not a movie guy. But it's, it's similar to that thing I'm talking about where it's like, I don't embrace new technology, but I don't reject it either. I let it find me on my own terms. So it's kind of how I feel about movies where I don't seek out new movies. If I eventually see them, I see them, but it's not a priority, not a big deal. But one thing I noticed around the mid nineties is like, you know, I, I feel like Tarantino probably did this. That shows you how out of touch I am is that that's like the only director I can come up with. But you know, you would see this where they would play an unlikely song. Like, I think the torture scene from Reservoir Dogs even did that, didn't it? Um, but I associate it with that period because you started to see it more and more often, but it lost its power. When you use that kind of juxtaposition too often, it loses its power. And there's a musician that I know of, I'm not even a fan, but one of his big things is he will take mundane visuals and he'll use like a mundane image of a, you know, a house or something, you know, just something day to day life, something kind of mundane. He'll use an image of something just normal. And then the title of the record will be something kind of dark or suggestive. And that's effective juxtaposition, because in the same way that I want to reconcile how these two songs sound alike, but I'm not actually hearing it. So my imagination kind of goes into overdrive. If you take an image and you associate it with like dark subject matter, like a dark song title or dark music, your brain will try to reconcile that and you end up seeing that mundane thing as dark. Like you can see a picture of a couch and be like, oh, 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 this is ominous. Dude, this is that's that's an ominous photo. But if you saw that photo on its own without any kind of album title or if you didn't know who the artist was, you'd just be like, it's a couch. Look at the couch. I sure would like to sit on it. But because it's associated with this dark subject matter, you see the same picture of the couch and you go, oh my God, that's a scary couch. I would never want to sit on that couch. What's going on on the other side of the room? I wonder what's going on on the other side of the room. I bet something bad. You know, your brain does that instead because juxtaposition forces you to reconcile these two seemingly separate ideas. And that's an effective technique, but it can easily become a shtick. You can easily do that all the time. And that's a trick some artists use. Uh, the artist in particular that I'm talking about, I feel like he does it a little too much. I feel like he does it, he does it a little too much. Uh, but it's his thing, you know, and I'm not going to criticize him for that. Uh, it's just something that he figured out. It's a little trick. And that's a common trick in art. You know, as I've declared myself an artsy person, because I like the idea of violence, but not violence itself. I like the representation of violence, but not violence itself. You know, in the same way that that's me, uh, and I'm an artsy person, I also recognize that this is one of the, the most basic tricks in art, which is you can do it in a very lazy way. And some people are very good at And this artist, to his credit, he's actually very good at doing this. And I think it's one reason why he's popular. But you'll see people who have tried to rip him off. You'll see people who have tried to do the same thing. And they don't, they're not very good at it. And 
that's something that you have to use very sparingly because when you do use it, it can be so effective because I appreciate it. But when you start seeing that all the time and when every single movie plays like a happy song behind a dark scene or a violent scene, you go, okay, I've seen this before. I know what you're trying to do. I mean, the Sopranos did that. The Sopranos did that in the pilot episode where they chased the guy down and hit him with a car. He owes Tony money. So they hit him with a car, and as they're, like, beating him up or chasing him, you know, they're playing a doo-wop song there. Doo-wop, it turns out, lends itself to this. And maybe I do this. Maybe this is what every night's a school night is, where a large part, especially early on, a large part of every night's a school night was playing these sappy love songs, but contextualizing them in this dark way. I was juxtaposing these sappy love songs with, you know, dark discussion dd oh a dd you having a dark discussion over there uh you know i don't know that I, I i didn't deliberately try to do that i feel like i just naturally do that but i'm not above doing this because i think it's effective juxtaposition is effective it's just something that you can't rest on because it is a trick it is a shtick it is a trick it is a shtick i'm gonna think of something that rhymes with that that isn't dick it isn't dicky. It's a sticky, tricky dicky. Stupid. It's it's stupid. That's what it is. But it, it's something to pay attention to. You know, I think that sort of juxtaposition. You know, you can do it with your identity. Like sometimes you can surprise somebody. I didn't know you listened to hip hop. Like Miles and I have talked about a million times. You know, when someone reveals their rap side. Like somebody who's who you would never think is a rap fan knows all the lyrics to like Nicki Minaj. And that's juxtaposition. It's like, hey, you thought that I was uh, you thought that I made dark ambient music and listened to doom metal. But I know every lyric to Katy Perry. Juxtaposition. I'm not a one. I'm not a one trick pony. You know, you know, and, and that's that doesn't mean you should like not do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But it's kind of a trick we all learn. We learn how to juxtapose our own qualities. Nobody wants to be put in a box. Oh yeah, I wear really colorful streetwear by day. Oh, you might think of me the guy as the guy who walks around wearing bright homemade streetwear, which is a form of nineties nostalgia. You know, that when that streetwear trend, which I assume is still going on, but when it really hit full bloom, and I didn't even know that was the term. Somebody told me, oh, it's called streetwear. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that is, but I didn't know what it was called. But when people are wearing this kind of weird, it's it's kind of like somebody took 90s fashion and like cut it up and collaged it. And that turned into this streetwear look. There's a similarity, at least. Although I really I'm out of my league talking about it. Uh, but it's kind of the, you know, I wear streetwear by day. I wear colorful, weird, artistic streetwear by day. And then at night, I wear black turtlenecks and tight black pants. Because I'm a, a walking juxtaposition. I'm a walking contradiction, like Green Day. Green Day. Oh, is that a Green Day? Is that a Green Day song? One sec. No, I think with that, the bell is sounded. I got nothing to add. We're at an hour and seven minutes. There's nothing left to add. Just some thoughts in my brain, you know. 
Uh, don't put a coexist sticker on your car because you very well might be tailgating someone tomorrow. And with that coexist sticker on your car, you're going to look like a hypocrite. Although that, might, that does make for good juxtaposition. To their credit, maybe that's what they were doing. Maybe I was watching performance art when I saw this car with a rainbow coexist sticker suffering from road rage. Maybe that they were just like, hey, this is a, a juxtaposition right here. This is a Bronx Tales fight scene with a doo-wop song in the background, except it's a coexist sticker on the car of you know, a driver who's just lost his mind tailgating somebody. Juxtaposition. But that's the other thing about juxtaposition, is you can use juxtaposition to make sense of anything, because people's imaginations will try to fill in the blanks. Your own imagination will fill in the blanks. So you can actually, you can be a very manipulative person with, with juxtaposition because you're constantly tricking people into thinking that this thing makes sense and their mind will try to find an answer that does make sense. And you can do that with your life, you know, of course, and I was trying to end this episode, but you can do that with your life with ideas where not everything that people say is hypocritical is hypocritical. Not everything that people say is a contradiction is a contradiction. Because we're at a point socially where if you say to somebody, I believe in the legalization of marijuana, but I believe that abortion is evil and should be illegal, they're going to call you a hypocrite. There are people, many of them, who if you were to say that I support the legalization of marijuana, but I think abortion should be illegal, they would say that is hypocritical. And you might believe them. But those two ideas have no relationship to each other. They've been bundled, though. So always look for the bundling. And we've bundled a whole lot of ideas. Our modern political identities are these bundles that actually have nothing to do with each other. Like the individual items within each bundle, which I feel like, what am I talking about? <laughs> uh, the, the individual items within the bundle that you unboxed no, but when you look at that, you know, you'll see these ideas and you'll be like, hey, hey, these things aren't actually connected. But we have created these identities based around these bundles of ideas that force us to believe these things are related when they're actually not. And so that's something that's important to remember, because there are some things that make you a hypocrite. Excuse me. Dropping dropping caps, dropping kombucha caps. No, but there are some things that make you a hypocrite. And that are bad for you. Like if I say, oh yeah, you know what? The, the Ten Commandment that I believe in the most is thou shalt not steal. But then I go out and I steal shit. Like I go and I, I steal my neighbor's car. That's not an acceptable contradiction. Because there are acceptable contradictions. There are things that you can actually reconcile. You were just conditioned into not realizing that those two things could be reconciled. In the same way that people think that your attitude about weed should be the same as your attitude about abortion. Those two things, you know, while they have been bundled together because a lot of people have consistent beliefs, but, you know, a lot of people's beliefs about those two things are fairly consistent and they've attached themselves to them in a certain way. You have to remember that they're not attached at all. And, uh, you know, so it's, you're not actually contradicting anything. 
But there are even some situations that are a little more contradictory than that. There are certain ideas that you can have. I mean, you could even say like, you know, with what I'm saying, where I believe in nonviolence. I believe fundamentally in practicing nonviolence, and I mean that. But yet, I also know that I am capable of violence. Somebody could say that that's hypocritical. Somebody could say that that's contradictory. It's not. But somebody could see it that way. And it just takes you taking a step back or climbing up another rung of the ladder and gaining a slightly higher vantage point so that you can look down and you can see those from up above and say, oh, hey, those things actually aren't in opposition to each other. But there are things that are. You know, because when I talk about all this stuff, I'm not saying you should have no values or no ethics. Like I'm talking about stealing. Like if you fundamentally believe that stealing is bad, but you steal things, that's not an acceptable contradiction. You just don't have any ethics. You just don't, ha- you don't, you don't stand for the things that you believe in. Although there might be a situation where you do steal. You know, and I don't want to get too far into that, but just there could be a situation where you have to steal to survive and go against your ethics. But on a, on a general practicable level, you know, you can say, I don't believe in stealing, therefore I don't steal. And that makes you consistent because you should try to be consistent, but you shouldn't get hung up on the things that people have incorrectly labeled contradictory. Because people have done that for their own manipulative purposes, and I don't even know that they've realized they've done that. I don't even know that people are aware that they've bundled things together that actually have no relationship to each other, and having different feelings about those things doesn't make you a hypocrite, yet people will call you one, those phantoms. So take a look at that. You know, in your own life, just consider those things and be like, you know, does this make me a hypocrite or not? Does this make me fundamentally hypocritical? Or is there an acceptable contradiction in this? Or maybe can I reconcile this? It's one thing to have an acceptable contradiction, but you might even be able to reconcile it where it's no longer a contradiction. It's like, it's like a, you know, a Zen koan is basically an unanswerable question. It's sort of a riddle. And you can kind of turn these things into a Zen koan and one element of a Zen koan is contradiction. A Zen koan will bring up a circumstance that is either impossible or where it's impossible to reconcile two different sides or, or two different ideas within that koan. And the idea is that you move beyond that. You know, I'm not going to say I, I know. I'm not going to say I know what the fundamental idea is behind a Zen koan. But I, I know in my own experience that those sorts of riddles, those unanswerable questions can help you climb up that rung. They can help you look at the bigger picture of what you're considering and either realize it doesn't matter or there actually is a way for those things to fit together. There actually is a way for those things to harmonize. So it's, you know, you can have acceptable contradictions, things that kind of rub up against each other, but don't undermine your values. But it turns out you can also reconcile those things. There might be a moment where the melody kicks in and you go, oh, no, wait, that's what he was referring to. These things are compatible. These things are similar. These things are, they fit together. They are fit together. No, these things fit together. You know, you might have that moment where you go, okay. You might have the moment where you see the hidden image. Because that's sometimes what happens in the 
in between a contradiction. In the space between two contradictory ideas, you might actually see a hidden image that reconciles those two ideas. But I can tell you, just like I can't see magic eye hidden images very well, just like I'm not good at that, I did not see the hidden image in that tailgating coexist rainbow car, tailgating someone today. I didn't see the hidden image in that, but I enjoyed it. I didn't in turn get mad at them. I didn't sit there and go, I see their road rage and now it's my turn. You know, I didn't get mad at them for doing what they were doing in large part because they weren't tailgating me. If they were tailgating me, I might feel a little bit different. I might start having self-defense fantasies. But if they were tailgating me, I'd feel a little bit different. But because I was just witnessing this from a little space away, I was able to enjoy it. And sometimes that is the reconciliation. Sometimes the reconciliation between two different things is the fact that you can simply enjoy it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can